morning. Uh, Pastor Drew spoke a few weeks ago, and uh, we got to talking about how do you choose a text or a topic to preach on, you know, and we both came to the conclusion that, that these one-time special event sermons are the most difficult to prepare because you've got the whole Bible, right, to find one text to say something and of course, right, it's, it's all good, right? It's the Bible. But that's the problem, right? It's, it's hard to land on the perfect topic sometimes. Uh, he stole my wrestling intro, by the way. Uh, so I can't even use that, but um, I forgive him. Uh, so Pastor Rob asked me to preach a, a couple of months ago, which is plenty of time to prepare, right? But, but as the time drew near even up until about two weeks ago, I just, I could not choose a topic. Um, everything felt sterile or uninteresting. So, so up until, like I said, a couple of weeks ago, I had nothing. And I was this close to calling Pastor Rob and saying, uh, find someone else because I, I just can't do it. Um, I didn't even want to do it. And, uh, but then I knew I'd actually have to give a real reason. And so I had to ask myself, right? Why am I so unmoved by any topic or, or felt like I would just be doing it because, well, it's my turn, so I have to. Um, what's really going on? Because I'd never really struggled to find a topic before, but, but this time, I just couldn't. And so then I had to be honest with myself. I'm angry. I'm angry. Uh, this might be, this might get me in trouble with them, but anyone who knows me knows that for the last seven years, I have been battling with the U.S. Embassy uh, to to try to get a travel visa. And they have denied me for the last seven years. Uh, the most recent time was in March. Um, and, and they won't give me a real reason why they won't give me a travel visa. Um, so I can't travel, and it's been very inconvenient, and that might seem like an insignificant thing. But, but it has also been stressful, you know? Uh, last year, my dad had emergency spine surgery in Florida. Um, this year, my mom had to go over to Florida for a month to have knee replacement surgery. She's here today, so she's okay. They're both here today, so they're both okay. Um, but, uh, well, and then also this year, one of my nieces needed to have surgery to have a tumor removed and I'm not allowed to go over there and support my family. I'm not allowed to support my parents when they can't walk. So she's fine, by the way, as well. Um, but when you take away a man's ability to support his family, you take away his ability to be a man, right? So, so I feel emasculated by this. So I have conversations 
every single day in my head with imaginary embassy agents <laughs> about what I'm going to say to them the next time I can make an appointment. I can't even make an appointment right now. It's been six months, and I can't even make an appointment. So I think what has been happening is that the, the lingering disappointment, the years of lingering disappointment have added up. Not just in relation to the embassy, um, but other areas of my life that have just not worked out as I had planned. Certain life events that have not happened. I'm 45, right? Certain life events have not happened <laughs> and are probably not going to happen. And so I, right? And I don't want to like bleed all over the pulpit in front of everybody because, because I know that there are many of you out there with much greater disappointment and suffering than I have. So I don't want to indulge that. Um, but these things add up, and they, they can make you feel disinterested and angry and bitter, and you don't even realize that that's what you're feeling. And so I recognized that, and then I wondered, is there anyone in the Bible who has dealt with bitterness about their situation and said it plainly, right? And so that's where we're going to land today. We're going to land in the book of Ruth, uh, chapter 1. So you know I've had to preach this sermon to myself uh, for the last two weeks and let the text do its work in my heart so that I can share it with you honestly. So we're going to look at three things this morning. Um, number one, what are the symptoms of bitterness? Number two, what God thinks of our bitterness? How does he handle our bitterness? And number three, finally, what is God's conduit of grace to us in our bitterness? So open to the book of Ruth in the first chapter. And our focus today is not going to be on Ruth and Boaz, but rather on who the text focuses on in the first chapter, Naomi. We're going to do a small character study on, on Naomi through the whole book, so that means I'm going to have to summarize uh, and skip over a lot of the story and text, but, but we will stop to read the very relevant uh, verses. So, in chapter one, Naomi, Naomi had a life in Moab. She and her husband moved there when, when there was a famine in Israel, and apparently they, they did very well because they stayed. Um, she had two sons, but then her husband died. Those sons married two Moabite girls and lived there for about 10 years, but then her sons died, and the famine comes back to Moab. But then she hears that the Lord has blessed Israel with food again, and so she makes plans to go back to Bethlehem after more than a decade. So Naomi's husband has died. Her sons have died. She has to uproot her life and move back to what is basically a foreign place to her now with no real plan for how she is going to start over. 
Remember, this is a male-driven society where the men own everything. And without a husband or a son to claim any land, she is basically moving back to Bethlehem as a destitute widow. I'm not sure I can think of a more vulnerable or unpredictable future for an older woman in this era. She is left with no protector, no provider, and no progeny to carry on the family name. So how does Naomi respond to this total upheaval of her life? Does she say, well, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, brother. Not at all. She's not there yet. She actually responds with three rejections based in bitterness. The first rejection we see is is that of her family. She tries to send her daughters-in-law away with a blessing in verses 8 and 9. But they refuse and say they are going to stay with her. And there's weeping. But she insists they go back to Moab and, and she uses some sort of bizarre reasoning about her being too old to have new sons who could grow up and become their new husbands. Like, Naomi, this is not how it works. They don't have to wait for you to have new children to get another husband. Verse 13. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi means that the bitterness of her situation will be too hard for anyone else to endure. That's one of the symptoms of bitterness. It makes us irrational. It makes us feel like We're just a burden to other people. It makes us feel shame simply for needing help. It makes us reject the people closest to us because the situation we are facing is so overwhelming that we can't even accept help when it's offered to us. But, of course, Ruth is persistent and finally convinces Naomi uh, by having to actually swear on her life that she won't abandon her. These are the lengths you have to go to to convince bitter people. So Ruth goes with her. It's the first rejection. The second rejection we see is is that of her community. Uh, You would think that when you're moving back to a new place, a place you haven't lived in over a decade, you might want to be nice and ease your way back into the community with people you haven't seen in forever. Not Naomi. Naomi has a different strategy. Verses 19 and 20. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? 
she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. We'll stop there. She comes to Bethlehem and the ladies of the community are excited to see her. Is this Naomi back after all these years? She was always so pleasant. That's what Naomi means. It means pleasant. But Naomi stops that instantly. She responds to their excitement with, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. That's what Mara means. See, in the book of Ruth, your name was your defining characteristic. Ruth means friendship. And we see that in her loyalty to Naomi. Uh, Boaz means strength. Machlon and Kilion, Naomi's sons who died, their names mean sick and frail. Right? There's even a guy in chapter 4 that the author calls Mr. No-Name. It won't be translated like that in your Bibles, but in the Hebrew, that's literally what it means, Mr. No-Name, because he refused to become Ruth's redeemer, so he's not worthy of even including in the story. So the name tells us who you are, and Naomi says, I want to be identified as bitter. This is another symptom of bitterness, right? Isolating yourself and withdrawing from the community around you, becoming easily irritated by people who are genuinely just trying to be helpful and friendly. Bitterness wants you to be alone so you can wallow in your misery and feel like no one else could possibly understand. Proverbs 14 verse 10 says, The heart knows its own bitterness and no stranger shares its joy. Bitterness is almost delectable. We want to just taste it. That's what bitterness wants us to do. So no new friendships, no one around me who is going to be able to ease the burden, just me and my bitterness and my anger and my disappointment. That's the second rejection. The third rejection is obviously God himself. Earlier, Naomi said, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. God has attacked me. Here in Bethlehem, she gives the reason to call her bitter because God has dealt bitterly with me. In verse 20 and 21, she says, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She says, God, if you're going to give me a bitter situation, then I shall become bitter. You took everything away from me. 
I've come back to Bethlehem empty, completely ignoring Ruth, who will be the one who brings her restoration. That's something we do when we're bitter. She says, and God has testified against me. God has condemned me and brought calamity on me. If God testifies against you, what else can you do? Of course you're going to be convicted in this trial, right? Naomi is saying the trial is rigged and it's not fair because I can't argue with God himself. So I give up. Considering what Naomi has been through, can we blame her? What is this if not the language of grief? The same root Hebrew word for mara or bitterness has another form that is also translated as grief. That sense of mourning and being emotionally distraught that overwhelms us in the hardest moments. Grief and bitterness are related. Grief, grief is messy, right? There's no playbook for grief. You grieve the things you lost, the things that will never be, the plans that fail, the time of adjusting to a new reality while still remembering the old reality. There's no timeline for it. It ebbs and flows. Some days are good, and you feel embarrassed for feeling some relief. Some days are bad, and you just want those days to be over. Grief is messy, and there needs to be grace in grief. Uh, Pastor Jory quoted C.S. Lewis. I'm going to quote him again. The man wrote 54 books. He's got, there's going to be a quote for everything from C.S. Lewis, okay? Uh, it, most famous for the Chronicles of Narnia books, Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, those kind of things. He also wrote a short book called A Grief Observed After the Death of His Wife, which really shook his idea of God. He opens the book with this line. No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. Do you think Naomi was afraid? I bet she was. He also says in that book, he says, he says not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, oh, so there's no God at all, after all. But, so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. The final quote from this book that I'll say, he says, and I must surely admit that if my house was a house of cards, the sooner it was knocked down, the better. And only suffering could do it. God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He knew it already. 
It was I who didn't. What he's actually saying is he's the opposite of Abraham, right? When Abraham was tested, we say, oh, God, God knew Abraham's faith, and he knew it was Abraham who didn't know what he was going to do. C.S. Lewis is saying the opposite. He says, God always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize the fact was to knock it down. That's when we find out what our faith really is. These are the things Naomi is feeling in her grief. But if you notice, no one ever rebukes her. No one tells her, you can't say those things about God. And God never speaks directly in the book of Ruth. And so God doesn't rebuke her either. See, in a lot of ways, Naomi is correct in her theology. She would have affirmed the total sovereignty and control of God over every situation in our lives. She knows God is not caught by surprise in our situations or that he couldn't stop it. No, but she can't see past her pain, and so she attributes cruel intentions and unfair judgments on God's part. Right? She's heavy on God's sovereignty, but she's lacking on God's love. So let's, let's stop for a minute and ask this question. Is this any of us today? Have you experienced prolonged suffering or disappointment or loss? Plans were made. Life was moving along. But things went bad and you have to start over. Have you rejected offers of help? Have you withdrawn? Maybe you think God is punishing you like Naomi. You think he doesn't love you. You think he's being cruel. And you've stopped praying because it won't matter anyway. If that is you, you are in the exact same situation as Naomi. She feels abandoned, neglected, and rejected by God at the end of chapter 1. She has no hope. But our life stories are similar to these Bible stories in that the end of one chapter does not tell the whole story. The end of chapter one, the barley season is beginning. It's harvest time. There's going to be food. What if we saw the hardest parts of our lives as just chapters and seasons and that they don't last forever? It's hard to believe that while we're in them. But they won't last forever. And God can write beautiful endings. And he can turn winter into spring. 
So how does God respond to someone who is overwhelmed by their bitterness and their circumstances? Lord! <laughs> you can just tell, you can't just tell someone who is bitter to just stop being bitter. That'll fix it. <laughs> Does God give up on someone who has given up on him? If God was the tyrant that Naomi had come to believe he was, then she would have no hope. But throughout the rest of the book, we see God executing his plan and working for Naomi completely independent of her bitterness toward him and her situation. That is called grace. <clears throat> that was a heavy first half of the sermon. Uh, so we're going to jump straight to the end of the book to see Naomi's happy ending. Spoiler alert, okay? Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. This is the end. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. <laughs> they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse the father of David. The bitter has now become the blessed. But how? How was God able to deliver his grace to Naomi when she wanted nothing to do with him and he doesn't speak in the book of Ruth? It's through his most common means of grace to us our community, a community of believers. In Naomi's case, it comes through the people she had originally rejected. The story shifts focus to Ruth and Boaz in chapter 2 and how God brings them together to redeem Ruth and Naomi. So be careful who you reject because they may be the very people God wants to use to heal you. Chapters 2 and 3 begin and end with Ruth honoring Naomi and asking for her input and wisdom in her situation. Ruth asks permission to go out into the fields to glean. That's where she meets Boaz and then comes home and tells Naomi all about what happened, who she interacted with. This energizes Naomi to help Ruth lock Boaz down. In chapter 3, 
Again, Ruth respects Naomi and follows her advice. Uh, it's not the worst way to get a guy to marry you. To like get him while he's half asleep and say, hey, you should marry me. And he's like, what? Oh, okay. And then he wakes up and he's engaged. Like, it's not, it's not a bad idea. Um, but that's, that's how it works. Don't tell me God didn't cause that to happen. <laughs> um, the simple point here is to continue to include people who are overwhelmed. Include them in your life because grief can be very lonely and isolating. The other point to be made is that God uses individual obedience of believers to bless others. Ruth and Boaz's story plays out, right? Ruth takes a risk, waking Boaz up and telling him to marry her. Boaz follows through and jumps through hoops and obstacles to make sure he is the one who gets to redeem Ruth and marry her. And it's after all this that they have a child who Naomi then gets to care for and be restored. Ruth and Boaz, following God's will, ended up relieving the bitterness that Naomi had experienced. We have the opportunity to bless others as well when God blesses the outcomes of our obedience. What about the other group of people that Naomi rejected? The women in her community. They are the ones who point out to Naomi how her circumstances have turned around since she came back to Bethlehem. They point out that God, who she had accused of bringing bitterness upon her, had now given her renewed provision, protection, and purpose. See, we need the community around us to point out these things because sometimes we can't see them. We need a community of believers around us to remind us of God's goodness to us, especially when we don't want to hear it. But not only is Naomi blessed through Ruth and Boaz's obedience, but future generations are saved through Naomi's hardship. We see that the child Obed is in the line of David. And who also is in the line of David? Jesus. The book of Ruth from beginning to end is pointing to the Messiah. From a journey to Bethlehem, to a kinsman redeemer, to a woman being given a son through unusual means, right? To the messianic line. Jesus is all over this book. Jesus took our bitterness on the cross. He took our condemnation on the cross. And therefore, there is now no condemnation for those whose faith is in Christ Jesus. And so, when you feel like 
like Naomi who says, God has testified against me and condemned me. That will never happen because Jesus has taken our condemnation. Jesus is now our advocate. Naomi felt like there was no one who would defend her, but now we have Christ advocating for us before the Father. So this was just another way that the community has been God's conduit of grace, not only to suffering people, but to the lost world. So as we wrap up, uh, how can we apply the story of Naomi today? First, we need to be honest. We need to be honest about our bitterness. It does no one any good to go through the motions, to fake it. Honesty is the only way to move forward because, again, Naomi was not rebuked and God worked on her behalf anyway. So find someone you trust and tell them any ways you may feel like Naomi. And if someone wants to share their bitterness with you, don't judge them. Don't condemn them. Just listen. Just being listened to can be a relief to someone who feels like God does not hear them. Second, take opportunities for community. Of course this sermon turns into a small group sermon, right? The elders are doing their best to create environments where no one feels isolated if they're going through suffering. Naomi had her community who had to be there to encourage her and tell her and show her God is still good. But we have to take those opportunities. That's where we find God's grace to us. And finally, uh, commit to following God's will for your life. You never know how your obedience will dispense God's grace to others who get to see God being real and blessing you because you treated him like he was good and loving and gracious and worthy of obedience. You never know how God, just like Naomi, you never know how God can use your obedience and your hard circumstances to save future generations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the, the honesty in it, um, the way it shows us that we can be completely honest with you and, and you still work for us. You still move toward us. You still love us, even if we don't feel like it. Lord, I pray for those who are suffering today. I pray for those who... who may not have realized they've been living in bitterness um, against you or against others. And Father, I just pray that, that you would do real work in their heart, that, that, uh, that they would see you working in other circumstances in, your li in their life and that they would be able to turn around and bless you with how you work everything out. Things may be different. Things may never be the same. 
but you are still good and you are still working for our good. Even when it's hard, Lord, remind us, show us, make it clear, make it plain. In Jesus' name, amen.